Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone executive editor, Nathan Brackett. We have a big episode. Today we're gonna talk about Bob Dylan's treasure trove of archives, which are going to Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're also gonna talk about Metallica and their new album and, and look back at Master of Puppets. But first, we're gonna talk about what we're listening to, including the new Kendrick Lamar record and whether jazz is actually back in hip hop and pop. I have here Brittany Spanos, staff writer at RollingStone.com, and Will Hermes, contributing editor at Rolling Stone, who reviewed the new Kendrick record. Brittany, can you talk a little bit about this? This is like a bonus record. Supposedly there's a story like LeBron James told Kendrick Lamar he should put out a record. <laughs> yeah, I think he tweeted him at some point and was just like, you should just release all these untitled songs and all these like um, unfinished demos. And like he did right. on... In early March, he just surprised everyone with this incredible eight-track collection of these unfinished demos from To Pimp a Butterfly. Right, yeah. So the record is called, it's just called Untitled Unmastered. Yeah. It's all the song titles and the name just kind of looks like you're looking at the side of a reel-to-reel tape or something that's in exactly. a studio. There actually aren't any real song titles, right? Mm-mm. It's all just Untitled 1 through 8, and then there's, um, I think, believe there's dates on them There are well. dates on them, yeah, yeah which go back to, it. like, 2014. Yeah. And, right. But how accurate the dates are, it's hard to say. I mean, Kendrick tweeted that it was they were demos for To Pimp a Butterfly, but there's one song that references, I made To Pimp a Butterfly for you, as mm-hmm. if it had already been right. made, but by the date on the song, right. it was a year before the record was actually <laughs> finished. Right. So, it, you know, maybe they how were demos that, that got... Exactly. Right. It's a time warp. He's a master of <laughs> space-time. <laughs> Separation, but uh, but I you know I think they were probably demos from that record that got tweaked a little bit. Right? Yeah, and even a lot of the songs sort of reference each other, so it's interesting to see how they evolved or how they kind of got separated in the mix uh, throughout the album. For my money, like Kendrick Lamar is just like one of the most talented. He's definitely the biggest virtuoso MC out there. He's like one of my favorite mm-hmm. MCs out oh, there right ever. now, <laughs> yeah. ever, and possibly ever. I yeah. mean, like. He's someone who's got, you know, incredible phrasing and so talented. This incredible, like, hyperspeed flow, but also To Pimp a Butterfly touched on like, a lot of Black Lives Matter stuff and spanned, like, African-American history. He's just, like, one of my all-time favorites. And, like, with this, it feels like it's a side project, but it's also somebody who's, like, at just the top of their game. Another trumpet that sounded off and everyone heard it. It's happening. No more running from war wars. It's happening. No more discriminating the poor. It's happening. No more bad bitches and real niggas wishing it's almost like he's canonized himself and by releasing these demos and these bootlegs i mean to after two major label albums and releasing these demos and these unfinished tracks it's a lot of artists don't do that especially this early like especially talking about like the bob dylan archives later like that comes so much later like he's like like kendrick is releasing his archives (laughs) in real time (laughs) and they're awesome Said I needed divine intervention was his religion, and I was surprised. Him believing in Buddha, me believing in God. Asked him, What are you doing? When I first got the record and gave it a listen, I was like, Wow, okay, these are like an outtakes and sketches. And the more I listened to it, the more you you just appreciate how dense the recordings are, like how much great wordplay, how much rhythmic, you know, sophistication there is in his flow, and how the tracks are assembled. And I don't think credits have actually even been released least on this set right. yet but I'm just assuming it's the same like you know laundry list of dozens of players that were on to pimp a butterfly right. and the horn playing on it is great and it's just you know it's it's deep it's 
intimate yeah. on uh, just a, a personal level. You feel like you know this guy, but it, he's also going big picture and speaking about the, the black experience in America and all, you know, just all sorts of macro, micro things that he packs into, you know, a knockoff cut. Nothing, I mean, did you hear anything, either of you guys, that's as sticky as Black of the Berry or um, All Right, or is it... I feel like, like track seven or track seven or eight, it actually felt like something that could have been on To Pimp a Butterfly and maybe was a little too close to King Kunta or something. It like had mm. like, like a total groove. Juice won't get you high there. Levitate, 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 levitate. Life won't get you high like this here. No, he won't get you high like this here. No, she won't get you high like this here. No, for free won't get you high like this here. No, I feel like just the no, stuff no, no. that Kendrick Please tosses off is still interesting on some level. You wrote the review, Will. Like, how, where did you come down on the actual record? Would you recommend this to someone who didn't know Kendrick Lamar too well? Well, it's full of rich, great stuff. No, if it's the first thing you're going to experience with this guy, start with To Pimp a Butterfly. You know, Absolutely. start with the record beforehand. And I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, but again, it's like hearing a master at work. Yeah. It just is it. And he also works with so many amazing people, among them Kamasi Washington, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. And I think that's the uh, the other thing that makes him so great is not just that he has these amazing skills, but he's actually marshaled all these other people who are also cutting edge in different ways, whether it's Flying Lotus mm-hmm. or Kamasi Washington, you know, guys who are like at the absolute top of their game, like LeBron James, you know? <laughs> it's like like associating with like. Right. What's, where did you come down on this record compared to like Kendrick's other stuff and like what else is out there right now yeah I think on the opposite end if if someone comes to this album first like I it reminded me a lot of when I got into Nirvana I was really into with the lights out box at first before I started listening to everything else and that appealed to me on a different level right and I think that it's kind of like obviously if you love this and you're gonna love everything else too right but I think it's like an interesting if it were the entry point for someone it could be a really cool way of getting to know this artist when he's sort of just unfinished and sort of practicing these songs and practicing these sounds for himself. Well, yeah, it's like almost like he's like exploring his unfinished side. Like, like to pimp a butterfly had these incredible songs that like, like King Kunta that we talked about before, but like, it also had all these like loose ends and like, I can't imagine how many other MCs could actually go to that place, go to this like jazzy loose place and still keep it interesting. And he does that. And it's almost like with this, he's almost exploring that side. I mean, one thing we're going to talk about, and this segues into the bigger question for this, Kendrick Lamar like, got a lot of attention when he first came out with To Pimp a Butterfly last year for kind of bringing back jazz and having all these incredible players. Is that real? Will, I mean, I know you're someone who's both a huge jazz fan and a hip-hop fan. Do you, what, what do you make of that? Well, he's got great jazz players playing with him. And is he making jazz records? He's making records with jazz players, and there are elements of jazz in them, but it's being chopped up. The flow is hip-hop, and that is, you know, that takes precedence. So you're definitely going to have jazz purists going like, Yeah, when when aren't they? (laughs) But but that's what I want to hear. I mean, you know, I love hearing Kamasi's record on his Mm -hmm. own, but I also love hearing Kamasi's, you know, lines, you know, spliced, diced, dubbed, um, echoed by Ken um, in bits and pieces throughout the record. It's interesting as texture, but it's also 
getting all this other melodic and harmonic information to hip hop records that, you know, are sometimes like short on that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's interesting because it's like almost taking us back to the 90s, like, you know, Guru from Gangstar yep. at that mm-hmm. moment tribe. when he was really into jazz, you know, Tribe Ron Called West, Carter of course, on, Ron uh, Carter. Yeah. I mean, this is a little more, I'll, I'll say like this jazz revival for hip hop is like a little more outside. Like there's late period Coltrane influences. Yeah, let's like, just like CTI, like, soul jazz right. stuff. Although there's <laughs> right. a little bit of feel of that too. Right. Like they're, they're not like before, I feel like in the 90s, producers were going back and finding just the funkiest bass line they could or trying to recreate it. Whereas now it's like, it's a little more open-ended. I mean, the other thing about Kendrick, we talked about like what a virtuoso he is. Like there are only so many MCs who could keep it interesting rhyming over anything that sounds remotely like jazz. Mm. And he's someone who can do that. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, not too long before Timpa Butterfly came out, I had been talking with a friend who is a jazz musician, and we were talking about how there aren't a lot of young people who go to jazz concerts anymore or want to explore that or think of it the way that it began as such the sound of youth, the soundtrack of rebellion and all that. And it's interesting. Like, I hope that this starts a revival or starts a conversation or people are like, I'm going to go listen to Coltrane or like, I'm going to, you know, explore all these sounds that I'm not prone to explore because of music now or because of what's popular. Even like Donnie Trumpet and the social experiment surf had a lot of jazz elements too. And I'm hoping that that sort of also starts that conversation. I feel like in a weird way, it's almost like he's hearkening back to like that Donnie Trumpet record, which was great. It came out this summer. Mm-hmm. And maybe in a way that gave him permission to release kind of some of his B-sides. Like, Because that was a pretty yeah. loose record. It was a vibe record. It feels like Kendrick's kind of empowered just to say, like, all right, here are all this stuff. This is me getting even more out. Outside. Right. Mm-hmm. There's like that one bit at the end of, I think, Untitled 7, where yeah. like basically you're just hearing, you know, Kendrick and maybe somebody else playing bass. I don't know. Maybe it's Thundercat just yeah. like fooling around and a bunch of friends laughing and just kind of making up song ideas. So right. it's, it's a real sort of, it's like a diary. You're getting a sense that, right. you know, this is how art gets made. See, you just make me I imagine that there are going to be like young kids listening to that and just be like, yeah, I can, right. I can do that. Let's and make something up. Yeah, I mean, a lot of hip-hop and pop is made with, like, you'll have producers just totally doing their own thing, and sometimes MCs or singers just sending over an MP3 of their vocals. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's cool to have somebody celebrating this, like, total live music side. Yeah, that's actually my favorite part on the entire album is the second half of Untitled 7, because I just, like, a jam session on a hip-hop album in 2016 is incredible. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Let's go further into the jam, into the jazz, and talk about Kamasi Washington, (laughs) which was a big record last year. It, it was his, epic. It was epic. The record is epic. It's it's actually three hours long, or about, or close. It's three CDs. Yep. If you're into CDs, Will, can you talk a little bit about uh, Kamasi Washington? He, he played on the Kendrick record, but but what else is you know his he story? He played on the Kendrick record. He got started playing with Snoop years earlier. He's part of this collective of young LA-based jazz musicians who came up around. To a great extent, his dad, Kamasi's dad, is a renowned um, jazz teacher in L.A., and he used to play with the father of a musician named Thundercat, 
who was a major player on the Kendrick record, major player on Kamasi's record as well, um, and does records on his own. Phenomenal bass player. Awesome bass really player, yeah. Really great musical mind. And all these guys, um, you know, they were people who were there playing jazz, and they really coming through soul jazz tradition, through like the sort of black arts movement, post-Coltrane, post-free jazz of the 70s and 80s, and they speak all these languages in a jazz sense. It's kind of like a hip-hop artist. You know, you're, you're basically taking cool stuff from everywhere and making it into your own language, and they are working musicians. So right. as all people going to Berkeley School of Music or anybody who's really interested in jazz knows, it's like you can be really great technically, but you also have to make a living. So they've started, they started playing other stuff other than jazz. Right, right. And... Th- Kamasi finally getting the resources to make his own album. He had a lot of stuff. So coming out of the <laughs> gate with his debut, you made like, the most of it. <laughs> and he's like 35. Right. This is an amazing musician. Yeah, this three is hours <laughs> right. worth of music, just about, and uh, with a whole bunch of musicians. And from the same sessions that the Epic came out of, there are going to be sessions from some of those other cats. Right. But it's uh, you know it really resonated with with rock and pop fans, which is a cool thing. It doesn't doesn't happen very much with jazz records, but the connection to Kendrick and I think the fact that Kamasi speaks a jazz language both visually, spiritually, and musically that rock fans might well, relate think, to, I like mean, Coltrane he, and Sun Ra, I think, are big touchstones. And he said, too, I, I saw an interview with him where he, he talked about how you know he came out of a traditional jazz background, but then playing with people like Snoop, like doing session work, actually informed his jazz playing like he felt like you know he grew up listening to hip-hop he also had this other jazz side obviously like you know from his dad but then the just actually playing on hip-hop records maybe gave him you know a little more of a sense of the vibe and the groove and you can totally hear this on the epic it's uh it's just like got an incredible flow i feel like even like rock fans and hip-hop fans it's one of those records that they can plug into yeah i mean like it's difficult for me to sit through three hours of anything but this was like (laughs) when i when i first listened to it because i listened to it because of to pimp a butterfly and so i was just like this is incredible like it's just so i mean it reminded me a lot of sunra and like it was just so compelling to listen to it's really exciting to listen to it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and their their vocals. Yeah. I mean, it's got a, got the soul jazz <laughs> thing going on. Straight instrumental music mm-hmm. and, and it's groove. It's groove music. Right. So I think that people who are hip hop fans will vibe with it on that level too. It's cool when artists are, are willing to like push boundaries and it's almost a cliche, yeah. but it's true. It's like and it's not easy to do because you're always gonna catch it from both sides. You're gonna have hip hop fans on one side saying, like, wait, I don't need to li- listen to this stuff. It sounds like right. my dad's NPR station. Or like and you have 
jazz people on the other side, and I know a lot, you know, I know some jazz players, and I'm sure you guys do too, are like, oh, that Kamasi Washington, he's just getting paid. It's just <laughs> a good gig, you know, it's just regular jazz, you know, but it works, you know, and it's like, it takes certain like courage to do that, and it and it totally works. I so I don't know, like, should we try to answer the question, is is jazz back? <laughs> I don't know. Is it maybe it's not the maybe it's the wrong question. <laughs> I think we're on the cusp of the comeback. Like we're at the very like beginning <laughs> of like going up the hill and like people are like super diving into all of it. Right. But yeah, I think right. it's a very It's having a moment. Yeah, it's definitely having a moment and so I'm hoping it's not just like a phase or like a right. <laughs> like a like a year thing, but I think these are really exciting movements towards people being like, okay, right. let's try out jazz. Right. right. <laughs> Again. And I know, Will, you're always someone like, you always like music that crosses boundaries and like connects, you know, like yeah. music with, with hyphenates in it. Do you feel like, where would you like to see this go? I know it's hard to say. Like, what would you like to see more of? Drake uh, pulling in uh, Ron Carter? I don't know. What's going to happen? <laughs> where right. do you see this? <laughs> I'm yeah. setting you up here. It's, you know, People who are musicians talking to each other and doing new kind of stuff. I think the bottom fell out of the record business. Jazz players used to be able to play a bunch of gigs, sell a few records, you know, you piece something together. Now people got to do a lot of different things. And I think that's great. Bowie put out Black Star and the band on Black Star was Donnie McCaslin's band, which is a great young, well, not super young, but great jazz players from New York, but was Bowie's record a jazz record? No. But he, he, as he did, you know, as you know, he talked about being inspired by the Kendrick record while he, when yep. he made that. Yep. So that was encouraging to say. And then you've got a guy like Bill Fursell, who is, you know, renowned jazz guitarist. Um, he's playing on the new Lucinda Williams record and like coming on like a jam band guru or something like guitar <laughs> swami. He sounds great, and uh, I, I just think it makes music better. You know, jazz can sometimes disappear up its own genre, um, and, uh, and, you know, pop get, can get a little dull and just beat-obsessed and not doing interesting stuff, you know, getting needs more harmonic motion. So put that peanut butter and chocolate together, <laughs> I say. <laughs> All right. More jazz in our pop and more pop in our jazz. All right. Well said, sir. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I think we might leave it. Brittany Spanos and uh, Will Hermes, thank you very much. Right on. Good All to right. be here. And we're back. I'm here with contributing editor Rob Sheffield. Hey, Nathan. Hey there. And associate editor Andy Green. Hi there. Hi there. Hey, Hello. Andy. Hello, Rob. We're going to talk about something special happening in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is of keen interest to Dylan fans, Bob Dylan fans, for yeah. those at home. Andy, what just happened? This was big news in the New York Times. You wrote a story about this in the new issue yeah. of Rolling Stone. Yeah, it was rather shocking. It's been in the works for years, apparently, but they kept it totally quiet. Man, what no Dylan fans have known was he's saved everything for the past 50-odd years. He's saved all of his lyric notebooks, all of his artwork, his album art, just everything. And he sold it for about $20 million. Damn. 
Yeah. Damn. So if you go to, so it was sold to the Kaiser Foundation and the University of Oklahoma in Tulsa, and it's all going there. So now Dylan fans, they can they can go to Tulsa and just bathe in Dylan artifacts. Just it's unbelievable. Bob Dylan has been sitting on a mountain yeah. of of stuff of yeah. of so notebooks right. And, and but the notebooks and everything are cool. But the coolest thing for Dylan fans is he also sold his master tapes of every single take of every single song and every single album from 1962 until now will be accessible to the public, which is which is just almost all been unheard ever. So that's just the staggering thing. And there's over a thousand concert recordings and hundreds of hours of film footage. So it's almost, it's in the history of Dylan fandom, this is one of the biggest moments. This, this, <laughs> this is a pristine concert recording yes. and like individual stem tracks of like all the like Desolation Row, you can yeah. listen to the guitar player alone on Desolation yeah. Row. And live shows too? Yeah, there's over a thousand shows. So apparently, They've been taping everything, which is also unknown. <laughs> There's this whole world of Dylan, and it's just secretive. You know, finally it's being seen by the public. It's just unbelievable. And Dylan fans are going to go absolutely crazy. The chance to sit there and just have access to the whole vault. It kind of reminds me of when he just dropped Chronicles, his book, kind of just by surprise. Right. Like, where he would, was talking in you know, interviews for years, like, oh, I kind of forget yeah. that. Oh, I don't know. I don't care about the past. Right. And then, wait a minute, he just wrote a 250-page a a book, yeah, book going into incredible detail what? about these moments and his novelistic detail yeah. about moments of his life. Yeah. So this, this is like the, the, the memorabilia version of it. Right. That. But this is like the real history of everything, whereas that book, which is awesome, <laughs> oh. was on three really special specific eras and was was focused mainly about new morning and oh mercy and a bunch of it i it wasn't plagiarized but it was appropriated from other sources andy what if, what if you get to the new vault in oklahoma <laughs> yeah. and it turns out the entirety of the collection is stuff about new morning and oh mercy wait these are the rick springfield archives yeah phil oaks yeah no we yeah. have all the new morning sessions <laughs> yeah <laughs> Every second of, of this is the entirety of my career. Yeah, I mean, with Dylan, we never know when he promises full disclosure. Yeah, that's mm. always something no, to I, make someone I suspicious. Spoken about to, I've spoken to the curator. He has sorted through this he stuff. He seems like a legit. He guy. said that he punched up just like John Wesley Harding, which is a very mysterious album. That we have never heard those outtakes, and he was listening to the whole thing. So it's, it's real. Unreal. He heard a watchtower that had never been heard by the public. And there's the between song stuff when the tape was still rolling, where he's talking to the producer, talking to the musicians. I mean, it just peels back so many layers. So this is crazy news for you know this generation of Dylanologists, these people who have been writing books, yeah. have been scraping together yeah. like, all these interviews over the years, like right. maybe, you know. Finding a lyric sheet here in the Rock right. and Roll Hall of Fame, or maybe like a stem track somewhere right. else in like upstate New York. Yeah. And now it's just all there. Yeah. And a bunch of those Dylan books were based off interviews with people talking 40 years later. And often when you compare what they're saying to the actual tapes, they're kind of wrong. So, so much of this Dylan history is, is, is a bit distorted by just time, where now you can actually get these, it's, it's all primary sources. It's really, it's just amazing. Just thinking about the blood on the the tracks notebooks, to go through every draft of every song, just think of the book. Now you can write about one album now. Well, Dylan, like nobody else, 
ever attracts the kind of fan who really want to go through all these details, all these errata and, and alternate yeah. versions and rough drafts of everything. Right. And even the newer stuff will be interesting because so little is known about making of like modern times, for example. So let's hear day one of those sessions. It would be fascinating. Yeah. Rolling and tumbling. How did he come up with that song? <laughs> yeah. I want to see the rough drafts of that one. Right. <laughs> Just all the old blue songs he tumbling stole from. And rolling? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they were telling me there's a whole unheard version of Time Out of Mind with a different producer. I mean, just stuff like that. It's Who just, was the different producer? It was Jim Dickinson, the uh, piano player. Okay. Because, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know. I mean, there's just be so much stuff, and to sort through it will take months. I mean, I, I think some old Dylan fans are just going to move to Tulsa and just spend all day long just going through this stuff. And will they be allowed, do you know, are they yeah. just going to be allowed to go in at will? Well, are you going to need I a special think, laminate? Yeah, from what or, they were uh, telling uh, me, like, I spoke to people. <laughs> at Dylan at, Premium <laughs> class has... <laughs> It's still being worked out. The major artifacts will be on display to the public at some point soon. But if you're a journalist or a known Dylan scholar or a blogger, they will let you in. They want to have a very loose standard for who is allowed to go back there. Or if you're Andy Green. Or if you're Andy Green. They will have, they will <laughs> have a desk me. set aside for you, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I can't wait. I mean, I, I don't even it – would, it's, I just can't imagine starting, you know. If there's over 1,000 concerts, I, I have my fingertips – What's the first first one you listen to? Salt Lake City 76. This is the most mysterious Dylan show. It's the final show of his Rolling Thunder review in 76. There's no bootleg of it, but he supposedly played Jack of Hearts for for the first and last time. Wow. And it was supposed to be super long and the best show of the whole tour. It was even debated for a while if it was real, but fans went to the library <laughs> at Salt Lake City and found the microfiche of the review of it. Wow. And some fans were saying that's still fake. You know, it, it's been debated <laughs> for decades. So to hear the fabled Salt Lake City show be amazing and the street legal piano demos. I'm a huge fan of street legal. And yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. It's a very, it's a very debated topic. Andy I and I have been arguing about street legal for many, many years. I think I'm more on your side, Rob. But anyway, good. <laughs> I want the panel demos. I want to know if they're real. I want to hear every changing of the guard The take. actual tarot cards. Yeah, the actual tarot cards. I want every take of Senor. And I want to hear him, you know. Are there, are there any? Yeah, what, what, what's the biggest question that's going to get cleared up? For, for Dylan fans? Or are there any other, like, kind of seriously nagging ones that are going to settle, like, see some long-time bets? Or? I think they're really interested in hearing John Wesley Harding because there's so much mystery around that record, right? It was written at the same time as the Basement Tapes, but they never played any of the songs in, in those sessions, so they just want to hear every take of it, if he's talking to the band or anything, just what was going on back and, and then. That was like a very mysterious-sounding record. Yeah. yeah. That was, and that was a crucial and... time when he was coming back after the motorcycle yeah. accident. Right, right. Uh, in 1966, or se- seven. When, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the first day of the Blood on the Track sessions, when he plays the whole thing solo acoustic, which has never been bootlegged ever, right. I think people will really love to hear that stuff. I've heard tiny bits of it privately and they were incredible i think the time out of mind stuff will, will be interesting because that was so combative and there were so many musicians on it and the bits that you heard of it on the telltale science collection were incredible i think the songs were also different i think people will love to hear that there are like three different incredible versions of mississippi and right. each one of them's totally different right and each one of them is, is really good all my powers of expression and thoughts so sublime 
could never do you justice in a reason or rhyme. And even on something like Blonde on Blonde, where they just cut every take of it, I think there's still more to learn because they didn't put on, on the stuff of him talking to the band or anything. So there's even more off of something that there was just like a 30 disc, you know, box set about. Andy will do a search on Dylan lunch. Yeah. <laughs> get all his orders so, for lunch. Yeah, for for, so, I mean, what did he, he got paid a certain amount of money. It was a big tax write-off. He made right. you know, something around 20 million. Yeah. But it should be pointed out he could have made a lot more. Yeah. A lot of this. He sold the lyrics for Just Like a Rolling Stone for $2 million. Right. So, I mean, that, that's his most famous song, arguably. But each lyric sheet is definitely worth yeah. in the six figures, if not a lot more. So he could have just sold these on the private market for piece years, by piece. piece by piece, and made, I don't know, like $200 million more. Right. So it was actually a good deed for history that it's all going to be in one place. So he this, made money, but now right. he, it's going to be in one place and it's right. going to be in a museum. Just for the public, yeah, because yeah. it's always a nightmare scenario. This stuff winds up in some douchebag's basement and like nobody sees it, right. which is horrible. So in Oklahoma. You know, home state of Woody Guthrie and Roger Miller and, and Wanda Jackson and so many of his heroes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure he liked that idea. Right. And, and the person behind it was the billionaire, George Kaiser, who's yeah. hoping that Tulsa's going to get a big yeah. kind of creative lift from this. Right. And speaking of Guthrie, the same institution, they have the Guthrie papers also. So uh, I bet Dylan liked that fact, too, that his stuff will be in the same place as his hero stuff. It's good company. Yeah. yeah. So it's a really cool thing. I'm dying to, to go to Tulsa. I could just spend, like, I, I could spend four months there and still not hear everything. And it's going to open and, this year? Yeah. They have no dates yet, but they're hoping stuff is still being shipped over. But the video stuff, too. I mean, there's so many concerts that haven't really been seen yeah, or yeah. out of print forever. Like, and random shows with Tom Petty in the 80s, these multi-camera things. That they have every camera angle of you. You could watch Howie Epstein for for like three hours just playing bass. Probably uh, I've died and gone to heaven already. <laughs> yeah. Is the telethon from his Orthodox Jewish period? If the be box there, stuff is there, yeah. I will be thrilled to, to death. You know, we're, we're going to find out. Yeah, I guess we'll find but, out how much video archiving he did because it, it's strange how when when No Direction Home, yeah. this Scorsese documentary, which was just you know a, a toe in the ocean of this stuff, but. Even confirmed Dylan freaks had no idea that so much of this video footage yeah, existed. There was no idea that the big Judas moment that was on film. Yeah. And the Rolling Thunder tour was shot extensively with lots of different cameras, and they have all that raw footage. And and that's one of the best tours ever. That was that was with like Mick Ronson playing guitar from Bowie's band. I mean, it was incredible. And it's all on film. Andy's gonna go in and watch Ronaldo and Clara for a month. But like we were saying, like Dylan's fans are the kinds who will gravitate to that kind of thing. Like you were talking about the blood on the tracks notebook. Yeah. Three notebooks? Three notebooks, super tiny, with super small writing. They were talking about reproducing those so fans are able to hold it and go through them, which would wow. be pretty cool. He's also working on a new album. Can yeah. you talk a little bit There's about this? There's a new album they just announced called Fallen Angel. They've said nothing about it, but according to the Dylan rumor world, which is often right, but not always, it's is more Sinatra covers or songs that are associated with Frank Sinatra. Okay, so that would be along the lines of his last album. What'll I do? When you are far away 
Fallen Angel. Yeah. We didn't know it's going to be on it. It could be Poison covers. <laughs> <laughs> His last album was a bunch of Sinatra covers. Songs Sinatra didn't write, but songs associated Standards, with Sinatra. Right. Yeah. Songs that, like a lot of Dylan fans, I knew some of the Sinatra versions and some I knew from other versions. Lots of them were new to me. And one I only knew from the Golden Girls. <laughs> a song that B. Arthur sings, an episode where Dorothy goes to the bar where Blanche hangs out and there's a piano and Blanche likes to sit at the piano and sing show tunes. And it's really traumatic for Blanche that Dorothy is sort of invading her spot where all the men are. It's, it's kind of a pivotal episode. They have a sort of rapprochement in the ladies' room. Uh, it's, it's where Dorothy admits that she's jealous of Blanche. Oh, which, wow. Uh, yes, it, it, it's a very pivotal episode if you're kind of a Blanche Dorothy shipper. So <laughs> the fact that Dylan was doing What'll I Do on this, like, I, I refuse to believe for a second that Bob Dylan didn't know that. He captured he chose to the do pathos this of that He's episode. He's a guy who watched a lot of late night TV in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. As, as, as Andy figured out, so many of his, his songs from that period are just come from late night TV movies. So absolutely Golden Girls' influence on Bob Dylan could get yeah. even more massive right. on, on this one. He and could while, do... while you're organizing your archives, you have to have something on in the background. <laughs> yes, and exactly. It might have been the Golden Girls. Exactly. <laughs> It's going to be a Sophia concept album. The last one was Dorothy. He's just going to keep going with this. I grow cold, I grow weary, and I know I have sinned. He seems to really be enjoying these American standards. It's become his thing, and his concerts have been have increasingly overwhelmed with these songs, which some of the fans are a bit pissed about that that you buy a ticket to see Bob Dylan then half the night is Sinatra songs. But, but a lot of fans are enjoying them too. I yeah. know, Rob, you were talking before about seeing him perform a standard. Yeah, a these are ago. fantastic yeah. for his voice. Like a lot of Dylan fans, I, I first heard this phase of his project in the, in the great 2014 tour when he wasn't touching a guitar. He was doing all these songs from the last 20 years. Rather, he, he did two songs from the 60s and two from the <laughs> 70s. And... Everything else was from the more recent years of his career. And he ended the night sitting at the piano doing this song that I only knew as a Frank Sinatra song, Stay With Me. And the fantastic end to the night, but also a sort of brooding September of his years sort of ballad that's perfect for his grizzled voice right now. And and I love the Sinatra album. I, I don't know what you think I, about I it. I love that Lucky Old Son. That's my favorite song. Yeah, it's great. While that lucky old son has nothing to do but roll around heaven all day. You were talking before, Andy, about how it, one reason he might be doing these songs, aside from loving them and growing right. up with them, is that they, they suit his voice. Right. I think he's sort of realized he has severe limitations to his voice at this point in his life. Any sort of fast rock song just becomes garbled. If he sings a slow Sinatra song, it sounds actually great. It's sort of working with his current voice. You know, the fans, they call it, it's his, like, Wolfman voice or something, you know. It's very deep and throaty now. But these songs work with it. Right. And it's sort of kind of clever. Right. I mean, and if you're Bob Dylan, you know that your fans have a certain expectation of what Bob Dylan's voice is going to sound like right. in a certain type of song. Right. You know, and he, he played on Together Through Life, the blues record. He kind yeah. of really explored that Howlin' Wolf side. You know, right. he really did went for, became like this scratchy blues shouter. Mm -hmm. And now on this one, he's doing a totally different right. thing. And, and like, he's kind of finding ways around it. 
Right, and his whole career from day one has been about subverting expectations, and I think that's what he's doing now, to do so many songs that he didn't write as the world's greatest songwriter, and do two of them, <laughs> and have him be a big part of his concert. It's almost perverse, but also kind of brilliant. He's going on tour with uh, Mavis Staples. Yes, who he famously proposed to back in the 60s. She was one of his early loves. We'll get married on stage yeah. <laughs> together Madison through Square life. Garden, like like Sly yeah. Stone. And they're playing Forest Hills Tennis Stadium, which was his first full they electric are? show ever. When? Yeah, on July 30th or something. I remember Damn, exactly. It's amazing. Yeah, he first played electric at the Folk Festival, famously, but that was just three songs. So his first actual electric show was at Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. We're reading the, the, the contemporary reviews of that show are so funny. Yeah. People were heckling, where's Ringo? Yeah. Like, that was the biggest insult in the world to Bob Dylan in 1965, was accusing him of sounding like the Beatles. Yeah. So it's coming around full circle. Yeah. And Except for the where's Ringo hecklers. Yeah. It's the He'll s- be back. It's the same tour. He's, he's going to Queens. <laughs> it's the same tour he started back in 1988. It's a pretty amazing thing. He turned 75 in May, and it's just still going. All right. Big doings. Andy Green? Yep. Thanks for coming out. No problem. Rob Sheffield? Thanks, man. All right. And we're back with our reader mail segment. I'm here with RollingStone.com senior writer, Corey Grow. Hello. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. All right. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about a Metallica story you recently wrote. Yeah. Tell me what happened in this, this Metallica story. Corey. Well, this, uh, this month marks the 30th anniversary of Master of Puppets, which was the album that really made Metallica. You know, it was their turning point. They were no longer this little small garage band from, you know, Los Angeles, then, you know, San Francisco. And they became, you know, the Metallica that we know. And it really set the tone for what they would accomplish in the future. It was also the last album that featured their bassist, Cliff Burton. And when he died that same year, 1986, it set them on another path when they sort of refocused. So it was sort of a turning point year for the band. Absolutely, yeah. And so I spoke with Lars, and I spoke with Kirk Hammett, and I spoke with the producer on the album, Fleming Rasmussen, who has some pretty funny and interesting memories of everything. Right, (laughs) right, right. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So, I mean, the the Metallica Nation was awakened by your story, which was excellent. Yeah, thank you. And and we got a lot of reader mail. Some of it's commentary, some of it's factual. I'm going to just start into it. Uh, One is from a a reader with a username, Derp1003. (laughs) Hi, Derp. Quote, We will never put out a music video, unquote, Metallica. Then Metallica puts out a music video, one from And Justice For All, their album, one of the best MTV videos of all time. Remember? I do remember. Uh, (laughs) I do, too. (laughs) Uh, So this this reader, he's calling them on their... their, their, He is. He's calling them on, you know, maybe three decades old beef here. Right. You know, when Metallica came up, they were very much an underground band, and they weren't expecting success. They weren't courting success, and that was true on Master of Puppets, too. So when Master of Puppets came out, they said, we're not doing a single. We're not doing a video. We're going to tour with Ozzy Osbourne, and they ended up getting a gold record within six months by doing that. Things changed, and Justice for All comes out. They had a change of heart, and they made the amazing video for one. I think bands are allowed to change their minds yes. every once in a while. Yes, I think yeah. everyone is. <laughs> right. 
Pete Townsend no longer wants to die when he gets old, before he gets old. And, <laughs> and, okay, the next uh, letter is from a reader named NMLSS. I'm, I'm noticing a lack of vowels in a lot, of, yes. a lot of the readers responding to the story. Okay, Metallica basically changed the way rock metal videos were done. Until one, everything was lame, live, quote-unquote, recordings on fake stages, like Maiden, or lots of hairspraying girls, Motley Crue. And then one happened. Four guys wearing black clothes, except Lars, just jamming in an old factory with clips from Johnny Got His Gun in the middle. Still, my first Metallica video was The Memory Remains and then The Unforgiven 2, the one that turned me on to Metallica and made me buy the Black Album. 19 years later, I've seen them live four times. First of them was when I was 12, and every time I see them, I still feel like when I was 12. Yeah. Well, that's not really a question, but it's nice. I I get that feeling when I see them live, too. You know, I kind of go back to them, because I discovered Metallica probably around when I was 12, too, you know, when the Black Album came out. Uh, As far as the the videos go, uh, there were a few different versions of the one video. There was the jammin' version, which is actually what he's kind of making fun of about a live recording on a fake stage. Then they did the one with Johnny Got His Gun. Johnny Got His Gun was a book that was written by Dalton Trumbo, who was recently in, you know, in the, the Trumbo biopic with Brian Cranston, right. all about him. He wrote this book, and then he later directed a movie based on the book. And uh, it was about a, a soldier who had lost all his limbs. He was a quadriplegic. And I think the movie, more than the book, inspired Metallica to write the song One, which is about you know a man kind of asking to end his life, like, please kill me. Right. And uh, it was a harrowing video, and obviously it struck a chord with people. So if they were going to do a video, that was the one to do. Right. But I, I think, yeah, 12 is right in that age range. It's definitely yeah. a time when a lot of people get into Metallica. Oh, yeah. Not, all, not everybody, but... Right. For me, it was Wherever I May Roam. I remember that video on MTV. <laughs> awesome. Because I, I turned 12 in 1992. All right. The next one is from a reader named B. Alvin. They really weren't as innovative as people give them credit for. What they really did was bring British metal to Americans who hadn't heard it before and largely still haven't heard it. One band in particular, Venom, they copied relentlessly, riff for riff in many cases. <laughs> I was a huge Metallica fan in the earliest days of Kill 'Em All and had no idea. But recently, I listened to the whole catalog of Venom and found stuff that was shockingly identical to Metallica and just looked at the dates. Metallica ripped them off and probably should be sued even. <laughs> of course, here and there, Lars, who really has been the leader of the band the whole time, did give some credit to various British bands, but not full credit, since that would make him look like what he is, dot, 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 a thief. Wow. <laughs> All right, so Corey, you're a fan, and, and uh, you work at Rolling Stone. Did yes. our Metallica just a Venom knockoff band? No, <laughs> not at all. They loved Venom. I do not hear any you know, similarities in their riffs personally. Um, I have heard similarities in riffs that they've, I think they've even acknowledged this, to Diamond Head, which was another British band. They've always been very... They probably got the... I mean, most Americans who listen to Diamond Head at this point because probably... Because yeah, yeah, because of Metallica. Yeah. yeah, they've always been very open about the influence of British bands on them. You know, yeah. Motorhead, they're huge Motorhead fans. You know? And I'm sure, and again, I'm, yeah. they didn't introduce Motorhead to the States, but they were huge boosters of Motorhead and probably got a lot of their own fans into Motorhead. Right, totally. And, you know, and they and then that whole tiny new wave of British heavy metal scene, which, you know, eventually gave us Dev Leppard and gave us uh, Iron Maiden. They were very big on that. They were into Diamond Head, Tigers of Pantang, um, all these kind of weird, obscure bands that wouldn't have had a platform otherwise. So I, I, I have to disagree with B. Alvin here. They do not sound like Venom to me, and they definitely have 
held British music in high esteem. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel like Venom yeah. has a suit. The last thing I'll say is that you know Lars Ulrich is a huge music fan and a student. I would say yes. of like metal and rock in general, and, and he is pretty scrupulous about talking about his influences and, yeah. and goes into great detail. Yeah, he loves to share his influences. You know? Right. All right. Moving on. Okay, this is from a reader named Grasham. It's right up there with Paranoid and Number of the Beast as Hallmark albums. It also does really hold up well recording and writing-wise. He's talking about Master of Puppets. Yeah. I think Metallica have become imprisoned by their own success. Mm. So many people tell them what they need to be, and they overthink everything they are doing now. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe the problem is that it takes 18 months to write and record something. Being creative at 24 is a lot easier than being creative at 54, but I bet if they just went with their guts and felt the music more, they could put out some great stuff. <laughs> Corey, Corey Grow, are, is Metallica in a gilded cage? No. Interestingly, though, when I was speaking with Lars, and we actually just posted a brand new article based on that interview today on the website, he does acknowledge that, you know, when he goes back and he thinks about writing Master of Puppets, they just got in the garage and they wrote, and yes, that's true. He says now, you know, they tend to think about songs a little bit more. Should this riff be played faster? Should it be played slower? Should it be played in a different key? And they go through all the different permutations of it, and that's why it takes a little bit longer, but... I think that, especially since Death Magnetic, when they were working with Rick Rubin, they are trusting their guts a lot more. Yeah, you know, and I, I mean, they've always a, trusted their guts. It's a natural part too of getting older as a as a right. rock and roller. You definitely, you know, you you don't have that feeling of playing something like it's the first time you ever played it. But right. you also gain. Hopefully, you gain some experience. Right. And you brought, and a lot of other things are easier and faster. Yeah, and, and, there's something so. to be said for considering what you're doing, and I think that that's what they do a little bit more. For sure. Okay. A uh, reader named Alessandro has written in saying, Master of Puppets was made only in two months, question mark? <laughs> are they alien or something? They are. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Mars this is, is from Mars. <laughs> this writer is named James Heidfield. Mm. Heidfeld. I don't know. Eerily similar? Eerily similar to James Heidfield. I still have a vinyl copy of this album from when it was released. It was a card inside with dates for the September-October 1986 European tour. Sadly, of course, was never completed. Yeah, I remember that. I remember seeing that in the... I have a vinyl copy of it, too, and they list them all in there. And That was the tour when Cliff Burton died in the van accident. Yeah, it was. And I have that copy of that on vinyl as well, and as I recall... They didn't have a date schedule that just said TBD for when that concert, their next concert would have been after the Swedish show that was his final show, which is mm. sort of sadly prescient, tragic aspect right. of that. All right, last letter from a, a writer named Josh Allen. Everyone rips on the new stuff. I think their newest album was their best since the Burton days. That is my two cents worth. <laughs> He's talking about... Death Magnetic. Death Magnetic. Right. Uh, Death Magnetic, definitely a fantastic album. I think that maybe he's underselling some of the stuff they've done since then. I know that the Load and the Reload albums get a bad rap. When you go back to it with 20 Years of Hindsight, there's actually a lot of kind of cool stuff on there. You know, I think a lot of people are just taken off guard by the abrupt change that they did. Uh, but it, there's, it's stuff worth going back to and listening to and reconsidering. So, you know, I, I agree that uh, their That's, new stuff does get a bad rap. Yeah, uh, I it's think probably an outlier opinion saying Death Magnetic is one of, is their best since those yeah, days. But, little, but but we can appreciate the yeah, spirit of it. Metalheads are passionate, and I, right. think, I think it's great that he's passionate. <laughs> <laughs> I heard some news. You know, Metallica are back in the studio. Is there anything else right. you can say about that? Well, Lars was telling me, and this was in the uh, article that we just posted, he's hoping that they can wrap the album recording it this spring. I don't know if that means it'll be this year that it'll come out. I don't know if it means next year. 
maybe they'll, you know, you never know, but it seems like they could put it out this year. Yeah. He seemed pretty optimistic. So, you know, fingers crossed. All right. Corey Groh, thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. All right. And that's it for Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please leave a review at the iTunes store or subscribe or do both. 